I'm David Brent Johnson. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Luke Gillespie. Luke Gillespie is a pianist and professor of music at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. He was born in Kyoto, Japan, and grew up in the Japanese city of Osaka. He attended the Canadian Academy, an international school in Japan, and then came to America to enroll at Indiana University in 1975. He is the first person at Indiana University to obtain both a jazz piano master's degree and a classical piano doctoral degree. He has released three CDs, a solo CD called Footprints, and two trio CDs, Live at the Station and Third Bass Line. He has also appeared or recorded as a sideman with David Baker, the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra, Benny Golson, Sylvia McNair, Jamie Abersold, and many other artists. Luke, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. You had a rather unusual childhood for an American boy, geographically and culturally speaking. How did you come to be born and grow up in Japan? Uh, well, my father was a uh, Southern Baptist minister. Uh, I guess in today's language, uh, he would be considered uh, he would have been considered a moderate Southern Baptist minister from Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, my mother was from Southern Indiana, and uh, she was in nursing school in Louisville, and when he was in seminary, and so they both met in between <laughs> in Louisville, and um, uh, Dad. Um, uh, was a minister at a couple of churches in Illinois, I think it was, in Kentucky. And uh, he actually wanted to be a missionary to the Soviet Union initially. But uh, he was discouraged from doing that. It was the the era of Stalin, and it was not probably the safest place to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the height of the so, Cold War, right. Yeah. Uh, and about that time, uh, along about that time, uh, in, uh, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, Dad was preaching to his congregations about how we're supposed to love our enemies. Well, some of his congregation didn't take to that too kindly, um, especially after Pearl Harbor, but that changed his his focus, and he wanted to go to Japan. So uh, in 1947, just a couple of years after the war, he uh, my parents both went to Japan, and um, they started uh, their missionary work there. My oldest two brothers had been born already in 42 and 45, and my sister was born there in 49, and then on a furlough, uh, my brother was born in Indiana in 52, and then I was born when they were back in Japan in 57. So you have four siblings. So four older. I'm the youngest of five. Yeah. You said your mother was a nurse. I understand she helped some of the victims of the Hiroshima bombing. Well, from what I understand is they were first living in the southern island of Kyushu when they uh, arrived in Japan. And they were both appointed as missionaries, but my mother was still had her nursing license and so forth. And, and she and a fellow missionary nurse, uh, they, I believe, went up to uh, Hiroshima and were helping uh, victims. I mean, there were victims years and years <laughs> uh, later that continued to, to need help. And um, so she she helped some of the victims at that time. My parents eventually moved to the Osaka area uh, in the sort of the southwest uh, middle part of, of the big island, the biggest island, uh, Honshu, uh, which is uh, some several hours south of Tokyo. And that's basically where I grew up. The school that you mentioned, the international school, was in the city of Kobe, and um, some people may know that city from the famous uh, um, earthquake that took place in the mid-'90s. Of course, I, had, I was over here when that happened. But um, what, what was it like for you uh, growing up in Japan? Well, that's hard to say. I guess it's almost like asking a fish, what's it like to be wet? I, <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know how to really – I mean, that was my childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up with uh, kids in the neighborhood – I spoke Japanese with them, and my pronunciation is, relatively speaking, a native pronunciation. But uh, it would be like, uh, say, a Japanese person speaking to you with a uh, speaking English to you with a heavy Texas accent, <laughs> and so because it was sort of Southern Japan, it's a uh -huh. Southern dialect. But um, I must say, when we came back uh, on furlough a couple of times. I, I did feel like a foreigner here in the U.S. 
And uh, my sister used to tell me, once you've spent the same number of years in the U.S. that you spent in Japan, you will start to feel acclimated. How is it different for you when you came to America when you were a kid? What were the differences you noticed? Why did you feel like a foreigner when you came here? Uh, there's so many cultural differences. I guess one of the things is that when you're a foreigner in Japan, of course, you, you do get stared at a lot. Um, and it makes you very self-conscious. But I, after a while, I just kind of got used to that. Uh, when I came over here, it's almost as if people expect you to be this, uh, the same, have the same cultural sort of background. And they may say things that you don't relate to. I wasn't necessarily watching the same uh, television shows they were watching. Though I did watch uh, The Fugitive and Mission Impossible um, dubbed. You know, <laughs> dubbed into Japanese. Dubbed into Japanese, yeah. yeah. And the Japanese are excellent at dubbing. So it was very un- – when I first saw – this is the old Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. When I first saw that in English, it just seemed weird to me. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can <laughs> so, But I, I, I think another thing is that the Japanese culture uh, involves people sort of holding their emotions in sometimes. It's a little more restrained. And another aspect is just the way the language is spoken. So, for example, in English, we, in order to pronounce our words, we protrude our lips like I'm doing right now. I mean, there's just different muscles that you use. And when you speak Japanese, you don't need to, to move them like that. In fact, it can be right on the, just the tip, right? And I'll try to imitate. So if I were to speak English as if I'm talking Japanese, it would start coming out like this, you see. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, mm-hmm. well, people wouldn't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in, in Japanese, you, you don't need to protrude your lips so much. Mm-hmm. So I, I found myself uh, speaking to people and they'd say, excuse me, what, what did you say? You know, could you speak more clearly, please? <laughs> <laughs> I was just not used to that. And so eventually getting in front of a classroom decades later and teaching helped me to enunciate my words more clearly. What was your experience like at the Canadian Academy at the International School? It was a school that had kids from all over the world. As long as you spoke English, you, you, you could uh, uh, be in, uh, enrolled. I had kids, um, let's see, some of my classmates were, uh, their parents were, were either missionaries or uh, some of them were involved in uh, the diplomat uh, you know, business. They were, uh, I think one, one of my classmates, her dad was the consulate general or something like that um, to Japan and then the others were there. Uh, one of my friends, his dad was in the import-export business, the trade business, and uh, some others were Far, uh, far East representatives for this or that corporation. Uh, it was just a whole bunch of different kids. And, and like I say, from all over the world, there were Asian kids. There were European kids. Um, I would say there, was, there, was, there were a lot of American kids but, uh, and Canadian kids, but uh, every class – from K through 12, which might have numbered about 30 per class. Almost every class, uh, maybe 30 to 40, uh, every class had kids from Asia and Europe as well. Um, and the Mideast, uh, many, and there were many students from the Mideast. And um, it was just a, a multicultural environment to grow up kind in. Kind of a mini UN Yeah, and You know, that's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, in some ways, it, it was like that because our teachers were from all over the world. Um, we had Canadian teachers, American teachers. There were European teachers, Asian teachers, uh, several teachers from India, um, and just other parts of the world. So you just early on grew up in this very multicultural atmosphere where it seemed very normal to be surrounded by people from a lot of different backgrounds. That's right. Were, were your parents or any other people in your family musical? How did, how, where do you think your musical gifts and talent came from? Uh, well, my father actually, when he was, I think he either in college or, or just after, he, as I understand it, he played the piano and sang on the radio. Of course, my father was born in 1912, so this would have been in the 30s. He never learned to read music, 
and he explained once that he learned to play the piano on an old piano, uh, those uh, piano rolls, mm-hmm. and he would, you know, you'd you'd uh, press your feet on the pedals, and the 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 piano roll would would uh, ro- you know go around, and that caused the notes on the piano to to go down, and of course, and play. And you've seen these old these old piano rolls, and yeah, yeah. and um, so he, he put his fingers in them. He didn't even know that you know see from a hole in the ground. He, he just he just picked it up, as they say, by ear, and uh, and he only knew a couple of keys, and he didn't really know what they were, <laughs> but he, that's how he learned, and and he learned uh, and accompanied uh, himself singing, and every once in a while, I I would I remember he would. Uh, he would sing a love song in, in the music uh, in the piano room, in the living room there, and uh, mom would uh, sometimes you know stick her head in the room smiling, and dad would serenade her you know <laughs> with these old old songs, uh-huh. and um, so I think he wanted us kids to have lessons that he never got to have, uh-huh. and uh, eventually they kind of stuck with the, my next brother and and me, and uh, uh, we both eventually majored in music here at IU. So you you started playing the piano when you were a kid, right? Uh, I guess it was the uh, first second grade there, uh, seven or eight years old. We had just moved to a new location in the Osaka area, and uh, my brother and sister had been taking lessons beforehand. But we had to find a new teacher, and uh, they found a new teacher for my brother. And I guess my parents were very strategic about how they did this, they talked about all this in front of me without asking me on purpose. And I heard this discussion about how they were going to all this uh, effort to find a teacher for my brother. And I said, well, can't I take lessons too? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had not started. I hadn't, I hadn't started at all. Uh-huh. And of course, um, I'm sure they... You know, there was a twinkle in, in their eye at that point, and they said, well, yeah, why, sure, you can. You know, because that was their strategy all along. They had wanted me to take lessons, too. What kind of music did you hear as a kid around the house? Like, Well, Dad, uh, Dad had some classical records. Uh, you know, he had a lot of LPs, and um, he loved the music of, um, of Liszt and Chopin, and uh, he had a lot of those records. He uh, also loved... Uh, a lot of black gospel music. Being from Memphis, he really enjoyed uh, music of Mahalia Jackson, and he had records of the Edwin Hawkins singers. Uh, and he also loved the Mills Brothers, and he would sometimes walk into the living room where the stereo was and try to imitate the way they, you know, they used to imitate, um, you know, a trombone, whatever they would do, and. Um, Dad would try to sing along like that, and he always—this is crazy—but he had an old trombone behind his his chair in the living room. He never got it out. He, you know, he never played it. But he just—it was just sitting in a case behind his chair. And he said, "Someday I'm going to learn to play this. You know, if if it's if it's in heaven, I'm going to learn to play this this trombone." He loved the trombone. So that, uh, of course, you know, he never did play it, but. Uh, he also loved the music of Nat King Cole. So we had a lot of his records at home. And um, just uh, one thing led to another, and I was listening to the classical music at home. I was listening to his records. And he liked some of those, uh, what would you call it now? Maybe they would call it, uh, you know, Pops records, like Percy Faith and... and um, kind of like light orchestral Yeah, light, music. some, you know, uh, light orchestral things. And he liked to listen to that. And he had some really interesting um, compilations. I, I should have looked at some of those. I have a lot of those records at home still. He loved music, and he wanted us kids to take lessons. So I, I started taking—we uh, actually started taking lessons from the neighborhood piano teacher we found. And within—I think it was just within a few weeks, she came up to us and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to teach your, your two boys anymore. I'm pregnant with twins. So she said, but you know what? I have um, an old classmate friend of mine who is much better than me. <laughs> in fact, she's a professor 
at the Osaka College of Music and an aspiring concert pianist. So my parents thought, oh, well, okay, all right, that's good. So we switched teachers to her, and wow, that was amazing. How did you, how did you come to your love of jazz? That was, interestingly enough, it, uh, my, my older brother was starting to play in rock bands in high school, and more, they were playing stuff like Jimi Hendrix and you know, Led Zeppelin or whatever. But they also liked, he, uh, he liked R&B music. And so he taught me how to play a blues scale. I think I was in eighth grade or so, seventh grade. And I was picking up, trying to pick up some tunes by, by either Hendrix or the Beatles or, or whoever it was. And um, then the first day of my eighth grade, I remember it very clearly. One of my classmates invited me over to his house. He said, hey, let's go listen to some records. And so we did. And he and his bro- older brother uh, had some jazz records. Well, he played Thelonious Monk's Blue Monk from the, the um, Alive in San Francisco album. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. This was fantastic. I thought, wow, I never heard anything like this in my life. So I said, man, can I borrow that? So I took it home and I recorded it onto reel-to-reel tape. And I looped it. I recorded it about 10 times on one <laughs> long reel-to-reel yeah. tape. They didn't even have cassette yet. I, and I just started trying to play along with it, and I, you know, I, I kept trying to play along with it. So, like, I learned the melody. I learned how he played the melody, and I learned some of his soloing on it. And um, that just uh, uh, that changed everything. It changed my life. And then the I guess the next thing was another friend. Uh, within the year or so, another friend at school who was two years older, uh, and if anybody of uh, who knows me from Japan uh, remembers, and it was uh, his name was Kentine Paredes, and uh, or spelled Quentin, but everybody called him Kentine. I just call him Q. You know? <laughs> but anyway, he invited me over to his house to listen to some music, and the two things happened at his house that that were amazing to me. He said, "Hey, check this out," and he he was a guitarist, and he he had his guitar plugged into the stereo, not a, not the separate amplifier, but the stereo. And he turned on the LP, and it was a Kenny Burrell uh, recording. And I noticed he was playing along with it on the guitar, note for note, playing exactly what Kenny Burrell was playing. So you kind of heard it in stereo, but it was perfect, you see. I thought, wow, that is so cool. And then he found out that I, I liked some fusion music of some kind, and because I, I think I said, man, you, what were you playing at the school dance last week? That was so cool. And he said, well, how about this? And he played Miles Davis's album, Bitches Brew. It was the first Miles album I ever heard in my life. And I, I didn't even know Kind of Blue existed, right? And I said, oh, man, that's really cool, man. And he said, oh, I've got a whole lot where that came from. <laughs> so he proceeded to play all kinds of you know jazz fusion re- recordings and so forth. And then one thing led to another. I must have recorded... On reel to reel, I must have recorded a thousand albums from him. Yeah, and I just, um, I just couldn't get enough. Well, let's listen right now to the recording that was sort of a seminal moment for you in, on your road to uh, to jazzdom. This is Thelonious Monk from Live in San Francisco doing Blue Monk.
We've been listening to Thelonious Monk performing Blue Monk from live in San Francisco. You're tuned into Profiles. I'm David Brent Johnson. My guest is pianist and IU Jacobs School of Music professor Luke Gillespie. Luke, how did you end up coming to Indiana University all the way from Japan? How did you land in Bloomington? As I said, my mother was from southern Indiana. And uh, some listeners might be familiar with a the late Dr. Lawrence Binham, who was the Lawrence County coroner for, I don't know, 100 years. And um, he married my mother's older sister. And so he was my uncle. And uh, so I have a number of cousins in the southern Indiana area. And my parents had bought a home in southern Indiana. Uh, and it was um, going to be the home they would retire in. And uh, as it worked out, we found out about Indiana University having a, a strong music program and a music school. And, in fact, my my brother went there when he graduated from high school in 71. And he wrote a letter. Of course, remember, this is there's no email. There's no, and you couldn't call overseas. It cost too much money. So I think we talked to some siblings once a year at Christmas on the phone, and that was it. So um, he wrote a letter to me, and he, he said, Hey, man, you got to come to Indiana University. You got to check out this David Baker guy. <laughs> he said he was sitting in on David Baker's jazz improvisation class. And, of course, here I am in, in uh, ninth grade, and, and my brother's a freshman at, at IU. So when we came back on furlough in the summer of 72, I went to the IU bookstore. I bought a couple of David's books. I bought his jazz improvisation textbook for, I think, nine ninety five. dollars <laughs> What is it now, twenty nine ninety five. <laughs> I also bought another book that uh, was recommended in that text, uh, Jerry Coker's Improvising Jazz. Well, I took those home to Japan with me. I read them. I tried to do uh, get all the records in David's suggested listening uh, list uh, that you saw at the end of every chapter. And I, I tried to do the assignments. So I had three years to look at that book before I came to IU. And, um, of course, sure enough, I got to IU and, and um, I had uh, um, auditioned as a classical piano major and was accepted that way. But I went to David's office the first day of class. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was in MA-279, which is the practice room now. And uh, he had uh, his graduate assistant, Bob Gustafson, the piano uh, AI, in the room with him. And I, I said, oh, hello, I'm sorry, I didn't see the auditions for jazz band. Um, is it possible that I could play for you? And he said, sure. So I sat down and I played, I remember I played Autumn Leaves. And then I played, he says, could you play a blues for me? And so I, then I played a blues. And I think Bob Gustafson was walking a bass line on the piano. And uh, I got done and he looked at me and he said, uh, you're welcome to be a jazz piano major if you want. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, this is fantastic. So I went down to the admissions office or not the admissions office. Sorry, I went down to the undergraduate office, and uh, which was, I think, in Sycamore at the time. And I said, well, I'd like to uh, change my major, please, from classical piano to jazz piano. And they, they said, oh, really? Oh, okay. I said, yeah, David Baker said it was all right. <laughs> so uh, we, there were no jazz piano teachers then. You know, the, the, the jazz piano AI taught the piano class, but no private lessons. So I just I continued my classical lessons with Mrs. Kaufman, Frida Kaufman. And uh, for my undergraduate years, um, and I took lessons that fresh my freshman year. I took lessons on the side, privately, with Bob Gustafson for five dollars an hour. And um, he taught me, he taught me how to play uh, blues for Alice, the Charlie Parker's uh, uh, ver, uh, chord changes to the blues. I had never really uh, heard or played that before. He taught me various altered voicings, and and he really helped me out a lot. What kind of impact did studying with David Baker have on you? What kind of influence did he have on you as a student and then later on just as a musician in general? Oh, man, where can I start with that? It's just every class, every single class, I learned something. In improvisation class, in history class, in pedagogy class, in, in uh, 
Styles class, uh, arranging, any class I took from him, I couldn't wait to get to class. I knew I was going to, uh, I was probably going to have mixed feelings because he was going to ask questions I couldn't answer. <laughs> they put you on the spot, you know. But at the same time, I, I knew I was going to learn something. And um, in essence, every class became an ear training class. You know, I had to understand and feel what I was hearing and be able to share it, whether it was talking about it or whether it was playing it. And, wow, there was just so much to absorb. And, I mean, it just seemed like he knew everything. And he was so willing to share his knowledge with us. Anytime somebody asks a question, he was right there. And he said, well, uh, you can try this. You can do that. You can do this. And here, listen to this album. Uh, this is what you need. Uh, how about you might check that album out, and uh, that'll um, address your concerns. Yeah, and if you listen to this, that'll really help you get um, uh, get to the point where you can understand, you know, the pentatonic scale or the diminished scale or, or, or whatever concept. Or, hey, check this out, and you'll hear Coltrane's uh, uh, changes on, on, uh, on tune-up, and you can hear countdown and, and so forth and so on. Uh, it was nonstop. And here he was, this is crazy, but when I was 18, he was 44. Of course, I thought anybody over 30 or 35 was an old person. You know? But he he seemed so energetic. It's always, he was on, it's like he was on top of his game all the time, to use that phrase. And in rehearsals, he never let up and he expected... 100% from us all the time. And um, I remember one day he was explaining how he got up real early in the morning. And then he would go out uh, jogging and, it, and then eventually he would go out walk, power walking. And he would listen to music uh, that that people would send him. I guess it was, back then it was on cassette. <laughs> and and uh, then he would come home and he would practice. He'd practice his cello for a couple of hours. And then he would go to school, and he'd be at school eight thirty, nine o'clock to teach a whole day. And not only that, he taught I – mean, a lot of people don't realize this. He, I mean, he taught four, five, six classes. You know, people don't realize the full load of teaching is either two classes and, and committee work and, and whatever research activities you do, or it might be 18 private students. And there's different uh, different ways that's broken down, but he taught he taught jazz improvisation, he taught jazz history, he taught uh, jazz pedagogy, he taught jazz arranging, uh, uh, composition, he conducted jazz band. Well, that's five right there. I mean, that's a load of two and a half professors. It sounds like he must have been quite a role model. I, to you. I mean, and I thought that was normal when I started teaching, <laughs> and and I remember. Uh, the uh, executive associate dean, Gene O'Brien, uh, when he brought me into his office and talking about my, my uh, teaching load when I first started teaching full time, uh, he said, well, you know, you're teaching too much right now it, between IUPUI and IU Bloomington. I said, really? I, well, I'm only teaching, and I said, like, three or four classes, you know. He goes, well, that's too much. I said, well, David Baker teaches, <laughs> you know, five or six classes, and he started laughing. He said, "No, no, no! Don't, don't use David Baker." <laughs> he said, "No, and that you know, it's like he's, he's, he's a, he's different, you know." He's like a jazz education superhero. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, he's a superhero. Uh, and uh, and when he told me what the actual full load w- was, the the different possibilities of a full load, I had never heard that before. This was back in 1997 when I was 40 and finished my doctorate, and they asked me to be full time. I wanted to ask you to tell the story kind of quickly about listening to Kind of Blue. When I was a, a junior, in the middle of my junior year, the piano AI, and I, I think it was Rick Marvin, if I'm not mistaken, he got a gig in the middle of the year, and he split. And I think it was either with Woody Herman or Maynard Ferguson. I can't remember which. And so David was put in a position where he didn't have a, an AI uh, or a graduate student who was uh, in place to teach the jazz piano class. And back then we had one class. So he approached me and he says, hey, would you 
do this. And he says, I can give you an AI position. So I, I thought, wow, this is kind of crazy. I, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I had never really taught before. And if you had told me I was going to be a college professor, I, I would have laughed. You know, I just wanted to play. I didn't have any designs on teaching. But David's mentorship really influenced me to want to get involved in teaching. And it started there. It started uh, with me becoming an AI in the middle of my junior year to teach that jazz piano class. So that meant I had a key to David's office. And I spent many hours in there either listening to some of his, you know, uh, the records that he had there. Of course, most of his record collection was at his home, but he would bring in a lot of stuff. So I was just hanging out one day, and and I noticed on the turntable uh, there was this record. It was looked kind of scratched up, you know. And then there was the record cover, the cardboard, that was so frayed that I could hardly even recognize that it said kind of blue on it. It took me about three or four seconds. Well, that's too long, right? I mean, just, that's just how worn it was. And the, the edge was so frayed that it was torn. So it was like a record sandwich, you know, two pieces of cardboard. And the inside sleeve that didn't even uh, exist. It wasn't there. So I was looking at it and um, just, you know, reviewing and going over the liner notes again. Um, and right about that time, David walked into the studio. And I... I said, uh, I called him David. He always told us, you know, my name's David. So, you know, we didn't um, take advantage of that. We respected him and and just called him David. But anyway, I said, wow, David, uh, you've really gotten a lot of mileage out of this record. And what he said next changed my life. He said, yeah, that's my seventh copy. (laughs) And I... I was speechless. I thought I had listened a lot. Here I was, 20 years old, 21. And I thought I'd listened. Man, I hadn't listened to anything, man. (laughs) I mean, people don't realize how many times you have to listen to a record to wear it out. I mean, hundreds of times, even if you don't really take good care of it. Hundreds of times. And so I thought, man, I I need to start listening a lot more than I, I I have been on a much deeper level. And that was a turning point. It really was. You were the first person at Indiana University to earn both a jazz piano master's degree and a classical piano doctoral degree. How has playing each style of music affected your playing of the other? Well, you know, there's no reason to throw away 300 years tradition of the instrument. So when you learn to play the instrument, I mean, it's a classical instrument. And just learning how to play it, just physically approaching it, is very important to have that technical foundation. And that has been very helpful for me. When I play jazz, my technique doesn't change. I'm still playing the the piano. If there's any change involved, it might be the same change that I might play. If I'm playing a Chopin piece, I'll play it a certain way. And if I play Bach, I'll play it a little, you know, um, use a little more rubato in a romantic piece that I would not use in a Baroque or a classical piece. It's just a difference in, in style. So I'm still playing the same instrument, and um, it's not like they're so mutually exclusive and separated. And I've, I've always wanted to kind of bring them together, and that's kind of what I tried to do in some ways with, um, uh, with my first uh, solo album. For example, in the the piece uh, arrangement I did on Round Midnight, you know, I played a sort of a Chopin or a John Field nocturne left hand while the right hand was playing the melody. Also, the classical technique has really helped, helped me to voice chords in the classical sense. That is to say, we say in jazz voicing, you play certain intervals um, in certain order. But uh, when I say classical voicing, I mean, say, bringing out one note louder than another or, or making a one note less than another. It has to do with touch and the distribution of weight on the keyboard so that you get subtleties of sound. You can play the same chord, but it'll sound different. Uh, it'll, it'll, you can get different sounds just by the way you voice that same chord 
where you play the one finger a little bit louder or or a little bit softer than the others. It's interesting that you draw on both jazz and classical for music, but even you go even beyond that. You've said that my musician's vocabulary is built upon an array of arts, and you've talked about the importance of an artist being a sort of renaissance person. Why, why do you think that's so important? I always like to speak with metaphors and talk about music as it relates to other arts. Music is only one as you know, one art, and as much as I'm obviously interested and committed to to music as a career, I want students to to have a um, more of an aesthetic foundation that goes beyond that, and that's that um, that includes you know the fine arts, you know, painting or sculpture or literature or uh, poetry or or um, ceramics or whatever one might might want to do. Uh, and I know my students, um, I'm sure they've heard me make all kinds of references to other arts in my teaching uh, to try to make a point so they can see it from a more bigger perspective. Um, I use sports that way. They, you know, they tease me about how I use uh, table tennis and, and baseball analogies a lot. And um, I, I think that makes the whole musical experience uh, more meaningful and significant. And um, I've probably, you know, I, every student is different. And some students will react to something that I say with just a, a musical phrase about something. But with other students, it might take some metaphor or some tertiary point, And finally, they start, oh, oh, yeah, okay, now I'm starting to get this. So I, I just want to have a variety of of perspectives and vantage points to share and see which ones might might communicate the best with one student um, as opposed, you know, with each separate student. You you just mentioned baseball, and you, you are a very passionate fan of baseball. Uh, you and your brothers have invented and marketed a simulation baseball board game, and uh, you've even played the organ for an Indiana University home baseball game. Uh, you're a Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, Unfortunately. <laughs> a sign of your dedication. Uh, what about the sport appeals to you so much? Uh, you know, we were, I guess we were raised on it. And my father was a huge baseball fan. And he grew up, um, he saw all the old, uh, the, the old players playing um, when he was a little boy in the 19-teens. Uh, let's see, his favorite players were, um, he loved Mel Ott, uh, along with Christy Matthewson. He loved uh, the pitcher Carl Hubble, was one of his favorites. And uh, Stan Musial was another one of his favorites. Of course, that was, actually, Stan Musial would have been a little bit more recent <laughs> than, than some of the others. But uh, uh, he took my oldest two brothers to b- baseball games. His uncle in Memphis took him to games uh, they went to see the, uh, I believe it's the Memphis Chicks. That's what there was the team name. I think they were um, the one of the farm clubs for the Chicago White Sox, and so Dad was always a Chicago White Sox fan. And uh, in Japan, during you know they have professional baseball there, of course, and uh, but during the off season, in order to uh, have something baseball related uh, to play with uh, my oldest two brothers, dad created a board game. And uh, we started playing that. Uh, eventually, all of us, uh, the four brothers especially, played a lot. Um, and then it was uh, about 15 years ago that we got together for a sibling reunion, and we actually got the game out and played it again. Uh, it had been a years, you know, decades, really. And we thought, how cool is this, man? You know, dad created such a cool game. And we just started tweaking it and going with it and revising it to the point where we thought, you know, hey, why don't we try to market this thing as a, as a simulation game? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so we called it Ultimate Baseball the Game. It's just a, UBTG. Um, and you can, of course, find it online and uh, we have a website and so forth. But our big thing is that you don't need a computer to play the game. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're – uh, we're struggling with sales right now, but uh, 
Uh, if some if some uh, famous ball player would help endorse the game, we'd we, we'd be it would, it would take we off. We would be most uh, uh, grateful. <laughs> it's it's interesting that you grew up in Japan in a culture that really has embraced a couple of uh, things that are thought of as American pastimes: mm-hmm. baseball yes. and jazz. Do you see any similarities or parallels between baseball and and jazz? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, when you look at it, they they're often. I mean, it's. You know, may sound kind of obvious. Uh, they're team sport. It's a team effort, and you um, you've got to be aware of what the others are doing, uh, and 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 you have to be aware of when it's your turn to you know to step up or to solo or to you know to support uh, to a company. You can't just do it on your own, and it it's it can be very humbling. <laughs> Baseball is a humbling sport. You know, you fail seven out of ten times, you're still a star. And um, so, yeah, I, I see a lot of uh, similarities from the standpoint of the the whole group dynamic. Well, and then there are uh, there are kind of memorable individual performances too. You know, you think of uh, somebody hitting three or four home runs in a game, or you think of Paul Gonzalez playing twenty seven choruses yeah. uh, with Duke Ellington, Newport, nineteen fifty six. We're going to listen now to a dynamic jazz piano performance you brought along, Ahmad Jamal's Wave. What was it about this particular recording here? What what was going on that made this kind of stand out for you as a as a great performance by Ahmad Jamal? Well, when I first heard this, uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school. It had just come out in 1970, and a couple years later, I heard it and and bought the the LP. And um, what really struck me in his playing was his use of extended pedal points uh, as long intros to a tune. And it, it it's caused the the tension to build. You know, what's he going to do next and what's happening here? And even though he was considered a, you know, a, a, a traditional jazz piano player, uh, especially heavily influenced by Errol Garner, uh, no one would have considered him sort of part of the avant-garde, so to speak. You know? But I heard, I heard things I, I had not heard before in those pedal points, and I heard some pentatonic things that he was doing. And I thought, man, this is this is really incredible playing that he's he's doing here. Another thing that I heard, but I I didn't observe it uh, and incorporate it into my own playing like I should have. Uh, it, um, early on, but he was a master of using space. And I always thought, no wonder Miles Davis made that comment, that famous comment, I believe it was a downbeat interview, where somebody said, um, uh, asked him about what he was listening to, and he says, I can't wait for the next Amajamal record. Something like that. I forgot the exact quote. But... Um, and at the time, Amajamal was just considered another, you know, another pianist on the scene. But when Miles said that, I guess everybody thought, "Wow, we need to go, we need to go check out Amajamal a lot more." And uh, so I'm really glad he said that. And um, uh, so yeah, I've that has stayed with me to this day. And when I'm when I play, I anytime I start sitting, uh, I start to play. I sit down, I start to play a um, a pedal point of some kind. I owe that to listening to Majamal. Well, let's listen to that recording right now. This is pianist Ahmad Jamal performing Wave.
We've been listening to pianist Ahmad Jamal performing Wave. I'm David Brent Johnson. My guest is Luke Gillespie. Luke, you've spent a lot of time over the last several decades teaching uh, as well as performing. What's the most important principle for you as a teacher? I'm trying to, I guess, light a fire with the students to get them as excited about the music as I am. Uh, I want them to know that I'm a student just like they are. Um, I've just been at it a little bit longer than they have, but I'm still a student, and I'm still learning, and I learn from them. Um, but I want, I want to share my passion for the music and... I guess I want to facilitate their learning. I want to create an environment that will provoke them to uh, to learn on their own. So I guess one of my jobs is to is to make my job obsolete, um, so that they can. Um, um, you know they have the 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 ways and means to to uh, learn uh, learn on their own. I there was a Bill Evans quote once where he's somebody wanted to take a lesson from him and and he wasn't really uh, showing him the student very much. The student wanted him to to Bill Evans to show him all these hip voicings and all this. And I think um, as I understand the story, Bill Evans said, "Look, I don't want to deprive you of the joy of figuring it out." On your own, <laughs> and now I'm not going to be that uh, distant to my, you know, or confusing to my student or the students, or that ambiguous. But uh, uh, you know, when they ask me a question, I'll say, "Well, uh, here, try this way or try that way." But I also want to try to get them into a situation where they might be able to figure something out on their own, and I, I try to create. Uh, facilitate the uh, this, and maybe I present them a canvas of some sort. I say, look here, here are the paint brushes, and here are your colors. And by the way, if you mix these two colors, this is what happens. And if you mix these three colors, this is what happens. And if you use this brush, this is what happens. Okay, now now you got to do the painting. I'm not going to paint it for you. What's uh, what's your guiding kind of ultimate philosophy for how you live your life overall, just as a as a human being and an artist? Wow. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. There's really nothing else. And uh, other people are, are struggling in their life, you know, just like anyone. And always remember uh, that uh, there are others who who have been where where you are. <laughs> and for me, in the context of how that relates to my teaching, I want students to realize that we owe to everybody that came before us. The, way, the reason we can play what we play right now, it's not because of we invented or we made it or we created it. No, it's because people before us did uh, did what they did, and they were influenced by whoever and so forth and so on, just kind of an endless line. And so I owe to all the piano players, all the, the jazz musicians, all the classical musicians, all the musicians, all the artists. I owe to every book I've read, every person I've met and had a conversation with, even if it was once at a, at a grocery store. Uh, I don't care what status they were. I, and I, I'm who I am because of everybody who has impacted my life. And I owe to everybody. You know, mu- we don't own music. Uh, music is, it doesn't belong to just me. Uh, we tap into it. It's a communal thing. It's a collective thing. And when we tap into it together, it's that much more meaningful for us. So it's all about relationship. I just finished telling my class the other day. Everything is about relationship. One core doesn't really matter, but where did it just come from? Where is it going? Um, and 
your life is about relationships. Uh, how something something is related to something else, how you related to something, is really what uh, what gives a, gives us significance and meaning. It's like um, I was joking in class. Um, well, I wasn't really joking, but you you don't see the word. Um, the definition of a word, you don't see that word in the dictionary. I mean, when somebody says, uh, what's the definition of table? You can't say it's a table-like thing. That's not going to work. You, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a surface that may have legs, and you have to describe it. Well, the meaning of something is always something other than itself. Or as Ezra Pound said, uh, the literary critic, the meaning of a poem is always another poem or something like that. So... Uh, I, I want my students to understand the beauty and value and significance of relationship. Relationship of chords, <laughs> relationships of people to things, to nature. You know, uh, right now or you know, within a month or so, the leaves are going to change, you know. It's the most beautiful time in Bloomington of the year to me, fall, and the fall foliage. And I want them, you know, go out, man, go out and, and check out the, the – you know, Brown County, or just go out and walk around a park, man, hang out and talk to a tree for a while. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's about it's about love and relationship. That's it. We really don't, you know, we don't need anything else. I've been speaking today with pianist and Indiana University Jacobs School of Music professor Luke Gillespie. Luke, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is David Brent Johnson for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.